There is no one generally accepted date of the start of the conflict in Northern Ireland, which became known as the Troubles. Most observers would suggest sometime in the late 1960s. Some participants would point indignantly to the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, others to the early plantations of Ulster several decades before that. There is, however, consensus on when the Troubles ended. 25 years ago this week, on April 10th, 1998, the Good Friday Agreement brought an end to the Troubles as they had become generally understood. A horrible, squalid and debilitating war involving Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries, Northern Irish police, British intelligence services and the British Army. At least 3,500 people were killed by the Troubles and nearly 50,000 injured, mostly in Northern Ireland, but not exclusively. The Troubles appeared the very definition of intractable, and then, remarkably, almost miraculously, the Troubles didn't. The peace created by the Good Friday Agreement has not been perfect. In parts of Northern Ireland, sectarian segregation remains a depressing fact of life. Organised violence is still a threat. Northern Ireland's devolved government is not currently governing. Good Friday nevertheless endures as an astonishing diplomatic accomplishment. Why was Good Friday possible when it hadn't been before? What hasn't worked and why? And what might Northern Ireland be another 25 years on? This is The Foreign Desk. In these past few days... The irresistible force, the political will, has met the immovable object, the legacy of the past, and it has actually moved it. The idea that if one side wins something in Northern Ireland, the other loses, is gone. The essence of what we have agreed is a choice. We are all winners or all losers. It is mutually assured benefit or mutually assured destruction here. My ultimate political aspiration remains the coming together of all the people of Ireland, achieved peacefully and by consent. I value deeply the close relationship between the Irish government and the British government. But I look forward equally to a new era of friendship and reconciliation between unionists and nationalists, in which each tradition can learn truly the value of the other. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined first of all by a key figure in getting the Good Friday Agreement to happen. In 1998, Jonathan Powell was Chief of Staff to UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, in which capacity he served as Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland. Jonathan is now CEO of the conflict resolution NGO Intermediate. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to start with the book you wrote about your involvement in the peace process. You called it, with apologies to W.B. Yeats, Great Hatred, Little Room. Once you found yourself in that little room, how great were those hatreds? How visceral was it? Was it actually personal between the people sitting around that table? Yes, and and no apologies to Yeats. Uh, It was stolen from Yeats, the title of the book, and it does actually capture the sense of Northern Ireland at that time very well. It is a very small place. People know each other. And the hatred was very real because they've been killing each other for 30 years. You didn't know if you were going to be safe or not. You didn't know if your relatives, friends, lovers were going to come home. And it was very, very bitter, which is one of the reasons why it's all the more remarkable that they were able to make peace in the end. 
Actually, one of the best stories that I can think about to illustrate this was Peter Sheridan, the Deputy Chief Constable in Northern Ireland, the most senior Catholic in the police force uh, in the later years, who had to be the first to meet with Republican representatives, with Martin McGuinness. The car he'd been in had been blown up a couple of times and everyone killed in it, apart from him. His house had been attacked by the IRA and he'd been driven out with his family three times. And yet he was prepared to be the person to sit down with Martin McGuinness and with Jerry Kelly and meet them and discuss how Republicans would cooperate with the police. So that hatred can be overcome, but it's very real. Was part of the motivation, as you saw it, for those people in trying to work around that hatred associated with their own self-preservation? I mean, as you correctly point out, being a senior figure in the Troubles was a fairly high-risk occupation. Jerry Adams, for one, had survived at least one assassination attempt. No, on the contrary, I like actually they were risking their lives by taking this move, particularly on the Republican side, as they pointed out to us a number of times, particularly Martin McGuinness used to point this out. He could have been killed at any stage for betraying his comrades by marching down the path to peace. It's not obvious to me that the IRA as a whole wanted to make peace, but Adams and McGuinness led them crab-like into that process, slightly against their will and certainly against their constitution to give up their weapons before there was a United Ireland. And thank goodness they did so. I mean, that was real political leadership. And on the other side, the Unionists also demonstrated extraordinary political leadership. They weren't risking their lives by making peace, but they did make their lives a lot more difficult. David Trimble would find himself meeting protests of radical unionists all the time and eventually lost the elections, lost his party and lost his job. So people on both sides were taking big risks to make peace. They weren't doing it because they were afraid. They were doing it despite being afraid. So if it wasn't self-preservation, was it a recognition on both sides of, it's a concept we've talked about on these programmes before, I think, as you put it, a perceived mutually hurting stalemate, a general recognition descending that we have been doing this for 30 years, it's not really getting anybody anywhere, are we really going to grind on for another few decades? Was it more akin to that? I think it was. I think this idea of a mutually hurting stalemate is quite a useful one for Northern Ireland. I think the British Army had realised late 1970s, early 1980s, that they could contain the IRA forever. There was never going to be a threat to the British state, uh, but they couldn't defeat them by purely military means. What they were doing was framing an eventual negotiation. I think Adams and McGuinness, probably by the mid-1980s, had realised they've reached well past fighting age by that stage, and they realised that this could go on forever. Their friends, nephews, nieces, etc., could be killed, could be arrested, but they weren't going to achieve United Ireland by force. And that's when they reached out first to John Hume, who deserves a huge amount of credit for taking the risk, then to the Irish government, eventually the British government. So I think that concept of uh, mutually hurting stalemate was important and why we managed to do it then when it'd been impossible earlier. But then there's also the leadership factor I just talked about. If you hadn't had that kind of leadership and if you hadn't had two prime ministers, Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, in power together for 10 years and prepared to put a huge amount of political capital and time into this process, you wouldn't have succeeded. Nevertheless, the Good Friday Agreement occurs quite early in Tony Blair's premiership, and the process, of course, does not start under Tony Blair. Some groundwork had been done by John Major prior to that, but nonetheless, it's quite a big risk for Blair as well at that point. Landslide election in 97, hugely popular incoming Prime Minister, an absolute fortune in political capital to spend. Was he at all nervous about spending that much of it on Northern Ireland this early, or was there a sense that the timing is right, this is a now or never proposition. I think it was a matter of self-belief, partly, that he believed that there could be peace in Northern Ireland. Many people before had not, Mrs Thatcher hadn't believed peace was possible in Northern Ireland. Churchill certainly hadn't. And I think he believed it could be done and he believed he could do it. He accused me of saying he had a messiah complex in his autobiography and that's why he made peace in Northern Ireland. 
wasn't quite that. It was Mary Mellon, very colourful Northern Ireland secretary, who told me Tony thought he was helping Jesus, which is not quite the same thing, but it has a similar impact. So he believed he could do it. He believed it could be done. And he was very lucky to have Bertie O'Hearn, this uh, guy who had, didn't carry the baggage of history with him as prime minister in Ireland and as a really experienced negotiator. So the two of them together were able to do it. Was he worried about spending the political capital? No, I don't think he was. He decided in opposition he wanted to spend some of his political capital on this. Remember, he changed the policy of the Labour Party when he became leader. He got rid of the policy of being a persuader for unification and instead decided on bipartisanship. We would support John Major, whatever he did in terms of making peace, even when we disagreed with him. And that policy of bipartisanship was crucial, again, because I think he was determined to achieve that peace. On the subject of, I guess, historical baggage, were you concerned personally or self-conscious personally about the amount of that that you brought into the room as a representative of the government of the United Kingdom attempting to intercede, even if benignly, in Northern Ireland? How worried were you about allowing your English accent loose in these conversations? No, I think it was, again, the other way around. That The problem in Northern Ireland, if you look back at its history, was Britain ignoring the Irish question and ignoring Northern Ireland. It's when we weren't paying attention that the trouble happens, and it is now also again. So I think it's welcomed in Northern Ireland when the British government does pay attention, does invest time and effort, particularly if it's the Prime Minister's time and effort, Number 10's time and effort. They welcome that. And in a way, what we and the Irish government were doing after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed was acting as, and George Mitchell stood back, we were acting as mediators between the two sides, even though we were parties to the conflict and were parties to peace, peace that had interests, we were able between the Unionist Republicans and Nationalists to try and pull things together in a balanced sort of way and eventually get to the implementation of the agreement, as you said. The Good Friday Agreement was in 98, but it wasn't until 2007 we actually had the institutions up and running in a sustainable way under Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness. Were there moments leading up to the agreement being agreed, though, where you just thought, this isn't going to work? Either somebody here is acting in bad faith, we may have misjudged the timing and our own role here, this is not looking at all good. When Tony Blair and I turned up in uh, Belfast just before the negotiations began on the Good Friday Agreement, George Mitchell said to Tony uh, he didn't think there was any chance of an agreement. He didn't know why Tony had bothered to come. And Bertie had quite severe reservations about coming. I looked back at my diary the other day and I said just before going to myself that my head told me we wouldn't get to an agreement, but my gut told me we would. And I appointed myself the sort of official optimist and tried to stay optimistic all the way through these negotiations, went, went through a series of ups and downs. It was a very emotional roller coaster. We kept thinking we got an agreement, then it dissolved, and we thought we had an agreement, it dissolved again. So this place where the negotiations was happening, Castle Buildings, was this awful building, been the centre of negotiations for months at that stage, it stank of sweat and stale food, and it was a horrible building. We had an office with no sort of windows on the outside world. And so you got a very emotional roller coaster, particularly after people had been not sleeping for three days and three nights. People got rather hysterical. So you went through these series of ups and downs. So, yes, it, at any stage it could have failed. But I convinced myself that we would get the way through and we did in the end, luckily. Were there particular moments of what looked like near disaster where something brought it back from the brink? Did you manage to identify any ideas or perhaps techniques which have been useful in your subsequent work in mediation of a way to actually resuscitate something that looks like it's expiring? Well, as I said, there were a series of near failures, but the last near failure was on the morning of Good Friday. We'd circulated the draft agreement to everyone. They were all looking at it. The Ulster Unionist Party had invited in lots of their members, or 40 or 50 of them, sitting downstairs looking at the agreement. 
And David Trimble came up with John Taylor and told us that it was unsatisfactory on the decommissioning of IRA weapons. They couldn't sign to it. And Tony explained to him that we couldn't reopen the agreement now everyone had it. If we tried to reopen it, we'd be there forever. There's no chance of getting to an agreement. And Trimble said, OK, well, I'll go back and discuss it with my party members and went downstairs. Tony became convinced that it wasn't going to work. We had to do something to get the unionists back on board or we'd lose the thing. So he dictated to me, I had a little laptop, and I dictated to me a side letter to David Trimble offering reassurances on weapons and the issue of decommissioning. He had a security official, John Steele, with him, and they dictated it to me. I typed it up, rushed downstairs. I couldn't get into the unionist office. I knocked on the door and they wouldn't let me in because they locked it so they didn't have any people lobbying them. I stuck the letter under the door. They opened the door for me eventually. I went in, went up to the top table, gave the letter to David Trimble. He had John Taylor, his deputy, sitting next to him. John Taylor read it over his shoulder and said, we'll run with that. As soon as he said that, I knew we had it. I left the room, went upstairs, got Tony to call the, the plenary as fast as possible for anyone else to change their minds. And we didn't even sign the agreement. We just went outside, Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, and gave a press conference announcing the agreement. So even that last stage, we could have lost it. What that was, was what I would call constructive ambiguity. Constructive ambiguity can be necessary in getting you to an agreement. In other words, ambiguity about what would happen about the weapons. But it becomes very dangerous afterwards because people have their expectations of the agreement. If they don't get it, uh, then they begin to lose faith in the agreement. That's happened with the unionists. And then we had to force that out of the negotiations in 2003 by forcing Sinn Féin IRA to choose between the Armalite and the ballot box. So it's a useful concept, but treat with care. Just to go back to the little room with the great hatred in it, when you reflect on it now and recall that period, it is, it is extraordinary, this unmakeable, upable cast of characters assembled in this process, these people who dominated the troubles of Northern Ireland, most now either out of politics or out of this world. But how important to getting it over the line were some of the somewhat surprising personal relationships which formed, most obviously and famously between, of all people, Martin McGuinness, a former brigade commander of the Derry IRA, and the Reverend Ian Paisley Sr., the fundamentalist unionist fire breather there weren't many relationships during the negotiation you know the Ulster Unionist party wouldn't speak to Sinn Féin in the negotiations the first bit they'd only speak through the chairman George Mitchell and the DUP refused to meet bilaterally with Sinn Féin the whole way through the last phase of the negotiations up to 2007 I had to shuttle between them so there weren't relationships then what was extraordinary was that the end of this whole process in 2007 McGuinness and Paisley were able, when they almost not knowing each other, to sit down and become the Chuckle Brothers to crack jokes. It was almost the first time they sat down on that sofa in Stormont with Tony Blair and Bertie O'Hearn there. And they started this relationship. But Martin McGuinness knew very well how to handle Paisley. Paisley appreciated that. And the two of them, despite having really been, in a way, co-responsible for starting the war, were able to bring it to an end and make it work. And one of the things that's slightly worrying is the new generation are not so able to keep the institutions up and running uh, despite not having been directly involved in the war in the way that those two were. So that's one of the things that worries me about the future. Well, on that thought, and just finally, no peace settlement or peace agreement, as you know better than most people, is ever going to be perfect. These things are always a bit of a muddle and a fudge and no one gets everything they want. But if you think back 25 years to how you hoped Northern Ireland might look in 2023 versus how it actually does look in 2023, where are the shortfalls? Where are the disappointments? Well, as you say, agreements don't always work as you expected. I was many years ago in the early 80s, the desk office of the negotiations with Hong Kong, and that hasn't ended up as I would have hoped, although actually preserving Hong Kong for as long as we did, I think was pretty surprising. And in case of Northern Ireland, it's important to remember that was a peace agreement. What it was was trying to end the fighting, end the war, and that it's done. 
But what it doesn't solve is the other problems. There's still some violence, still political crises, and there's still sectarianism. And that takes time. The one thing that I'd hoped would have happened was that politics would have reassigned itself away from a sectarian basis and into a more traditional left-right type of political system. Indeed, David Trimble said to me quite soon after the Good Friday Agreement, that's what he expected. He thought politics would settle into that left-right type, and that's why I think he joined the Conservative Party later. That hasn't happened. Although what is happening now is the growth of the alliance, that group in the centre, is growing rapidly in Northern Irish politics. And if you look at the census, that's true of the population too. The people who define themselves as neither unionist nor nationalist uh, has grown substantially. So I think that's probably where the hope lies, that actually sectarianism is gradually working out of the system. It just takes a lot longer than we expected. Jonathan Powell, thank you for joining us. That was Jonathan Powell, former Chief of Staff to Tony Blair. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. This is The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me now from Dublin is Aoife Moore, a political journalist originally from Derry. And from Belfast, we have the novelist Glenn Patterson, also author of the pertinent non-fiction book, Backstop Land. Let's begin with the hook for this programme, which is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I wanted to start by asking you both if you have particular recollections of it being signed. Uh, Aoife, I'll ask you first, I know this is quite early in your life, but it must have had particular resonance for your family. I had just turned eight when they signed the Good Friday Agreement, and I remember we were away on a Easter break holiday to Donegal, just over the border. I was watching cartoons in the living room of this house that we had rented, and the cartoons were interrupted by a news flash. And I went in to my mommy and daddy to complain that they had turned the cartoons off. <laughs> and it was then that my ma had said to my dad, oh, it must be the agreement. And they both came bounding into the living room to watch the news, to see Tony Blair and and Bertie Heron and everyone else that they had signed the agreement. And then that was the end of my day of fun. My man and I were just glued to the TV then for the rest of the day. So it was very much seen as a momentous thing, even within our family. And, you know, being from Derry and just on the border, you know, we would have passed a British Army checkpoint to go on that holiday, you know, with British troops, you know, with their... Watched her in there with their guns, checking the car when we crossed the border to go on holidays. So, you know, even that, something had changed within the time we had been on the holiday and the time we were going back. You know, there was definitely a feeling that things were changing. Even when I was young, you know, there was a feeling of hope, which even as a kid, you could tell that something good was happening because at that stage, even as a kid, there wasn't much good in the news. <laughs> And we were a very news-obsessed household. My dad was very into watching the news, very into reading the newspapers. So we were kept quite aware even when we were quite young. So, yeah, that's my main memory of it was a feeling that something had changed. Because, Aoife, to follow that up, as you have written about, and though it was obviously a while before you were born, you did lose a family member on Bloody Sunday in Derry. So thinking back to that, did your family regard Good Friday as a, an unalloyed cause for celebration or were their feelings a bit more mixed? I think everyone would say, I mean, I think for our family anyway, in Republican and Loyalist communities, there was mixed feelings. The big thing in our family was that what happened to us, we did not want it to happen to anyone else ever again. We were not a family who was out for revenge, but more for justice. 
there was very little in the Good Friday Agreement which dedicated itself to victims. It was something that was very much left out of the agreement and was kind of set aside to come back to it at a different date. But the overwhelming feeling in our family was positive, you know, that no one else would have to go through what we had went through and that there might be, you know, a future beyond violence. And, you know, it's not just Bloody Sunday tore our family apart, but our community then was torn apart by the hundreds, if not thousands, of young men and women who then went on to join IRA because of the actions in direct retaliation to the actions of the British Army. So there was mixed feelings definitely in Craigan and the bog side and all those, you know, nationalist Republican communities in Derry. But for most of it, it was one of support of hope. No agreement was going to be perfect. And for a lot of people, it didn't go far enough. But it was the impossible had happened. No one ever thought that we would get an agreement full stop. So the notion of, you know, that don't let perfect be the enemy of good, I think very much was the feeling for a lot of families who had lost someone at the time. And Glenn, what about you? How do you recall feeling about this 25 years ago? I was 28 years more than eight in 1998 when the agreement was signed. I remember the build-up extremely vividly and the talks process had been going on, of course, since 1996. We'd had elections to a forum, Northern Ireland Forum for Political Debate. So we'd had the talks breaking down, being got back up again for a couple of years when there was a head of steam clearly building up as we came towards April 1998. I remember being a novelist, you're always on call for when the talks overran and all the political commentators were exhausted. And when there was nothing really to comment on, they phoned the novelists (laughs) and asked you to go up to Stormont and stand outside and said, what are the people on the street thinking? To which you haven't the heart to say, I'm a novelist, I've got a book to finish. I very rarely get out in the street, except to come up here and tell you. But, <laughs> you know, the, the day itself, you know, I remember the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister, Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn arriving and, and that feeling that it was all in the balance right until the Friday. It was never meant to be the Good Friday Agreement. Everything just overran. I remember it being a particularly snowy evening, but it's just a feeling of euphoria. I think that it had been done, that something had been done. And there are many, many vivid images of that. I mean, one of the things was that Ian Paisley's DUP were not party to the talks at that stage and were very much literally outside the tent. And it seemed as though really something new had happened. And not just that we were getting something better, but maybe what was on offer was the best. Aoife, you were talking earlier about not making perfect the enemy of the good, and the situation now is obviously far from perfect, with Stormont still not actually functioning. But over the journey, what flaws have been revealed in the Good Friday Agreement? What hasn't worked? Well, for me, I think what is lacking and what you notice when you read about the Good Friday Agreement and everything leading up to it was the courage and the leadership that was shown by the political leaders of the time, by, you know, Jerry Adams, David Irvine, Don Purvis, Monica McWilliams, those people were willing to put their political careers on the line and sometimes lives on the line to go to their own communities and argue that this was, you know, for the greater good. So I think what is lacking and what has been lacking in the time since is that leadership and that courage from political leaders. You need to remember that the DUP never supported the Good Friday Agreement. 
And now we should not be surprised when they became the biggest party in Stormont that they really have no or little regard to the Good Friday Agreement. Now we have a Stormont that is only 60% of the time. The way the institutions were set up was that there could be, you know, a cross-community way of governing so that one community couldn't override the other but what has happened is that now one party can hold the entire institution to ransom over whatever it sees fit and we've seen Sinn Féin do this before and now we're seeing the DUP do it we're at a stage now where we're in a cost of living crisis the NHS in Northern Ireland is on its knees we're seeing growing paramilitary numbers we're seeing an increase in the security threat and yet we don't have an executive sitting in Stormont and ready in any way to tackle any of these issues. So it's not so much, I think, what the Good Friday Agreement failed to do. It's what the politicians who came after it failed to do. I think maybe when the threat of violence isn't as close that it's easy to, you know, get lost in the political squabbles of the day rather than smaller things and it is the most vulnerable communities that suffer and that's what bothers me you know the rate of poverty in northern ireland the rate of long-term unemployed the rate of personal debt of domestic violence of drug abuse mental health issues these are all the issues that have not seen a peace dividend this has not been sorted in the time since the Good Friday Agreement and could have the point of the Good Friday Agreement was to create a peace so that the other issues could be worked on and I haven't felt this negative or this disheartened about Northern Ireland political scene in quite a long time and I'm very young. Aoife, I will come back to that point you make about the spectre of paramilitarism and how it has never entirely subsided. But, Glenn, where you are in Belfast, is there any easing of sectarianism? There are still, across Northern Ireland, 60 or so of these so-called peace walls which separate communities. They're mostly in Belfast. Is that sectarianism still a big part of everyday life? It is very much still a part of everyday life. And in some ways, I think we have to say that the Good Friday Agreement baked in some of that by the requirement for political parties, representatives to designate as unionist or nationalist. And one of the first things very shortly after the agreement, in fact, on the eve of the election to the First Assembly, I was doing another broadcasting and I was in London. And I did a report for a program which I called, my report was called Significant Others. And it was about those of us who did not feel, no matter what our background had been, because, of course, you know, your religion at birth is supposed to determine your political allegiance. But those of us who didn't feel any religious conviction or to feel that our politics were determined by our religion and a feeling of trying to forge something other some kind of more, well, you could call it a hybrid identity or a kind of a multiple identity, something that was new and creative. From very, very early on, it was quite clear that what had been, with all good intentions, a way of ensuring, as Aoife said, that one part of the community could not dominate another, it became quite clear that that might also hamstring us. And the Good Friday Agreement is perhaps not terribly well known outside of this place that really our institutions nowadays are more determined by the St Andrews Agreement that happened in 2006-2007 that really reinforced a two-party 
ruled by Sinn Féin and the DUP. And some of the things that allow our institutions to be brought down actually came in there. So I think that it has in some ways that might not have been predicted, unfortunately reinforced some of those polarizing attitudes. But there is much more that we might have done outside of that to improve things. And one of the things we could have done is address those communities that are, again, as Aoife said, the most disadvantaged, which is where you're going to find all those peace walls. So the thing about a peace wall is that it's very easy when you're far away from it to say it shouldn't be there. If you're living right beside it, you can see very, very many good reasons why it ought to stay there for the time being, at least. Ify, to go back to your earlier reference to a possible or indeed actual resurgence of paramilitarism, we saw last week MI5 raising the terrorism threat level in Northern Ireland from substantial to severe. How worried are people by the thought of any kind of return to what the Good Friday Agreement has largely succeeded in doing away with? The difference now is it will not be a resurgence of violence that people think of when they think of the Troubles. The resurgence of violence will not be, you know, the likes of bombings by the real IRA or, or UVF or anything like that. What we're seeing now is paramilitary groups who are linked intrinsically to criminality. This is no longer a political mission. It is a criminal one. We know that loyalist paramilitaries are involved with extortion, with drug dealing, and it is in these vulnerable communities where they groom young men, and it is mostly young men in these groups. They reckon you know, the last count was over 12,000 members. These are not active members who are ready to take up the gun at any time. It is a lot to do with criminality. It's more a gangland style of violence than an actual political IRA, UVF, old style Type. So the concern is not a return to violence in the way that we have once known it. The concern is more and more people caught up in the criminality. For most people, the concern is not an all-out civil war. It is more and more criminality in which young people who do not have the same opportunities that people are afforded in Dublin or in London or Manchester or wherever else, they get tied up in this because of the lack of jobs, lack of opportunity, and all that is tied to the storm and stalemate you know without good leadership and without foreign direct investment and without a government to ensure all those opportunities come to the north that is how poverty flourishes and that's how criminality flourishes I wanted to end by asking you each in turn a question which has always been at the heart of Northern Ireland's various disputes, and that's the one about fundamentally whether there should even be a Northern Ireland. Glenn, have you noticed any perceptible shift in feelings about the idea of Irish reunification, whether due to the Good Friday Agreement or Brexit or whatever else? Is, is the mood shifting at all? Before I answer that question, just on paramilitary activity, paramilitary activity has continued, I wouldn't say unabated, but it has never completely disappeared. And I think very particularly, we have to remember the, what are now termed paramilitary style attacks, which are carried out by paramilitary organisations, again, nearly always on young males, whether that's beatings or shootings. And they've carried on at a fairly steady rate over the last 25 years, there have also been murders and there have been you know, other examples of breaches of the spirit and the letter of ceasefire by all paramilitary organisations. I live in the east of the city 
of Belfast and town next to me is Newton Ards. And in recent weeks, there's been a flare up again connected to drugs. Yes, but the same paramilitary organizations, at least the carapace of those still exists. And I think there has been a failure to address paramilitarism across those 25 years. Sometimes, again, with good intention of if we can just get over this hump here, it'll be worth it. But we've left paramilitary organizations intact. And one thing to say about the IRA is that all versions of the IRA started as the new IRA and all versions of the IRA came to be the true IRA and it's everybody else who has fallen away. So I think we can't be complacent about loyalist or Republican paramilitary organizations, even though we do have to keep that in context and say that these are not huge organizations. They're still very significant players and actors in the society here. On United Ireland, I think Brexit changed everything. I think the Good Friday Agreement was brought in in the context of a United Kingdom and an Ireland being in the European Union. It was possible to hold multiple identities. And I think that's what a lot of us responded to. We didn't have to decide anymore if we were Irish or British or Protestant or Catholic. You could be all kinds of things. You could be Irish, you could be British, you could be Northern Irish, you could be Belfast identity, your Derry identity. But overall, you were and you were a European. So you take away one of those things, then that fundamentally changes that. Clearly, there's been quite an increased call for a referendum on reunification in recent years. It's a central plank of Sinn Féin's politics at the moment. And of course, they're very close to being the largest party in both the North and the South. My feeling is that possibly the, the most important thing in recent months and weeks to happen to the prospects of a referendum on reunification is actually Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, because there was a kind of a feeling that certain things were happening with historic inevitability. And one of those was that Scotland was going to become independent and that Ireland would be reunified. Sometimes the things that matter most happen off stage. And Aoife, if we were to make a sequel to this programme another 25 years on, would we end up regarding the Good Friday Agreement as a stepping stone en route to a united Ireland? Oh, what a question. <laughs> it all depends on context. Like, I do think I agree completely with Glenn that Brexit changed everything. I think what Brexit, for most people, whether they were consider themselves unionist, nationalist or neither, what it did demonstrate is how little... England, the British Conservative Party especially, how little they understood Northern Ireland, how little they understood this place, the Good Friday Agreement, the border, how we operate and how long it took to get us here. And I think if there was ever an argument for people who want to unite North and South in Ireland, that all they would have to say is look at how they treated the North during Brexit. We were an afterthought. We are not the priority and we never will be. There is also very much a feeling, though, that Dublin doesn't understand us and Dublin very much abandoned their um, duties and responsibilities to the North over decades as well. I think Brexit, ironically, will probably be seen as a step in stone to United Ireland. I think the conversation has started. I think Dublin is very reticent to get involved with the conversation, but we are seeing it now, you know, from everywhere. There are unionists getting involved in the conversation and there are people who never thought they would consider United Ireland are involved in the conversation. But for most people, it will come down to the economic benefit 
that it offers. The most Republican person in the world is not going to vote to make their life worse just so they can say they love the United Ireland. So I think we're a long way off, but I don't think anyone would disagree that the ball has started rolling. So I definitely think, yeah, the conversation has started. But will we see the Good Friday Agreement? Probably, yeah. I think the Good Friday Agreement probably could be seen as that because for the first time it did set out the protocol for a referendum, whenever that would be. But I'm not going to take any guesses (laughs) at when it would be. One thing to that, the conversation undoubtedly about a referendum and uh, United Ireland has started. I think one thing that would be really helpful in that conversation is recognising that one of the things that could happen, the result of the referendum, could be that a majority of people vote for Northern Ireland to remain for the time being within the United Kingdom. And how we imagine what that looks like, seven years after that, you can rerun the referendum. It will be rerun and rerun and rerun until the day that the answer is reunification and then it stops. But I think that would be like a really useful thing to contemplate how after the first or second referendum, we still have Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom and on the island of Ireland. And I think maybe the term a new Ireland, which I often hear, is maybe the way to think about this, that it's not a bolt on. I've got a book called The Last Irish Question. Will six into 26 ever go? This Will the six counties ever go back into the 26 counties? Which is, you know, a slogan used to hear an awful lot when I was growing up. Northern Ireland can't be a bolt on to the Republic of Ireland. That's not the way this is going to work. I think we have to be as imaginative as we were 25 years ago when coming up with the Good Friday Agreement to think about how this island and this Ireland will look and work in the future. Aoife Moore and Glenn Patterson, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. And to play us out, this is a song about Good Friday by an artist from Northern Ireland. It's the Divine Comedy with Sunrise. Oh. Boy.